the age of information, huh? Anonymity is no longer a choice. Welcome everyone to the Tori Sesh Show. I've been extremely busy this week, both for personal matters. Uh, well, well, I tend to not stop working, so obviously they were married with uh, <laughs> work matters, of course. So while everyone's talking about everything, first things first. Why is Julian Assange still not free? That's a question everyone should be asking themselves considering everything. Now, there's a lot of things that many people want to talk about. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about Elon's choice. Let's talk about everything and anything in between. But that's not where we need to be focusing on. Oh, we should focus on Turkey and what's going on in the movie. We already know this from 2018 because sometimes scripts, they're just so perfect. And what people need to understand is in every movie, you need your main characters and you need your support actors, you need your extras, you need everything. And uh, as I've said before, the world is the stage and you're the spectator that's also a participant, passive one sometimes, active in others, watching titan wars happen above you. And sometimes you get a stray hit. So scripts are scripts. Done. But that's not why we're here. When we evaluate world and local and national and universal politics, we should always focus on the things that actually matter. So what does matter? Well, when I was in... Um, Detroit, I jumped on to a kind of last minute feed with um, Conservative Daily, which was pretty interesting. As uh, you know, I really wanted us to have, you know, a show just kind of analyzing what President Trump was saying during that well written script. Thank you very much. And it was fantastic. And it was perfect. And it showcased and people that were sitting on the far left started to scoot their chairs toward the middle. And people that were in the middle definitely are standing in the middle. They don't trust the left. They don't trust the right. And that's the way it should be. We should be trusting our gut. And you know, the heroes of the story aren't going to be the ones that you see in big lights. They're not going to be the ones you see dawned on your television set or at rallies. They're not going to be the ones that you see at speaking events. The heroes are you. The spectator that has decided to be a participant and says, you know what? I don't like the way this movie's going. This looks like a train wreck. We're changing this. See, if the script already set and the extras and the actors are the ones that do it, well, if they suck at acting, they'll just let the director do whatever he wants. You know, most movies, just so you know, blockbuster films that you've watched, they have a script, they learn lines. But do you think they deliver the lines that the writer wrote? No, absolutely not. They embody the role and that's what's it. Now, when there's a script written of how they want things to get done, and I'm gonna show you one of the most unspoken about scripts today, <laughs> actual organization, pretty much that dictates how invasions happen. Oh, I mean, immigration, of course. But here's the thing, it doesn't work if the supporting roles, the extras and the actors aren't on board, they can flip the script at any time. 
And there's always like Wreck-It Ralph people that just come in and throw wrenches and say, nope, we're trashing that and you're, you're just an extra. Shut up. Don't talk. Yeah, we'll take that wrench. And that is exactly what's happening. I hope all of you can see it. Now, we could talk about a couple things before we get in head first to something no one talked about ever, like forever, which is key that we should talk about. Because national security doesn't just focus on threats from foreign actors. Because, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, international politics like they know it. Nah, you can't just know it. That's basically it. You can't just know it. You got to live it. And sometimes, and I want people to understand this, this is why we have like black filling trends coming up. And this is why we see some people, it's like, why do they hate that person? Like that person's not even doing anything. They just hate them. Well, it's because they don't understand. In order to beat an enemy, you have to be the enemy first. And you have to be so embedded that they can't even see you coming. And then when you say, I am playing the role of your counterinsurgency, they believe you and then you fail because that's how you win. That's how you get people penned into a box. So let me show you how Everything that you're seeing down at the border, oh my gosh, like everyone's so distracted. And then we have this whole, oh, look, Milo and MTG and na, 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 na. Lots of fires everywhere. Lots of questions being had. Lots of questions being asked. And all necessary. Because we can't tell you. We have to show you. That's the way it always is, right? You know, and, and I take it, still, let's talk about it some kind of like more, more simple so we understand how things operate. Let's pretend you want to teach your kids how to cook. Or, you know, you want to learn how to cook something. There's a lot of ways that you could do it. You can watch a YouTube video and watch it step by step, right? You could go to a cooking class, which by the way, I totally want to go to one of those Sir Latavel or William Sonoma cooking classes just to be pretentious and eat the food because they'll give you the freshest stuff, just saying. But... But, you know, when I taught my girls how to cook, the way I would do it is, okay, it's time for dinner. I'm going to go cook now. And I'd grab one of the kids and be like, all right, here, do this. Well, where's the recipe? You don't need a recipe. Taste it. Stir it. Taste it. Keep tasting your food. Smell it, right? And this is how the, the, the type of learning people need. They need to taste it, smell it. Oh, that doesn't seem right. Let me add a little bit of seasoning. Maybe I should turn up the heat. Hey, it's looking like it's roaring on a fire. I'll turn that down just a notch until I get the taste just right. Well, this is exactly how politics works too. On a local level, meaning national, you know, you've got one pot. On a global level, you got a lot of pots. So you've got to be very skilled when talking about that. So I can express my deepest, you know, upset, you know, when I see people analyzing things like you know, what's going on and it's like, shut up. No, that's not it. Because no one paid attention to the moves that were made in 2018, 2019 that clearly tell you exactly what is being had and happening right now. I mean, Erdogan pretty much came out and said, well, the Americans are always meddling in elections. No shit, Sherlock. We know that, right? And I'm a good cook. 
I mean, I can cook some really good food, but you know, sometimes I get really, really trolly and I'll pull out that wooden spoon and start stirring the pot. Because sometimes when you stir the pot, you see what the ingredients really are and you can make assessments, I guess. So how are we going to make assessments? Well, with knowledge. I think it's pretty evident that the failures of mankind stem from lack of knowledge. And sensationalism, (laughs) I guess, sensationalism. Here's a sensationalist clip. What's going on here? And security uh, named the biggest threat facing America right now. No, it's not China. No, it's not the wide open border and the drug cartels. Uh, And no, it's not even Russia. Here's what they claim is the biggest threat to America right now. The most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland is white supremacy. And I'm not saying this because I'm at a black HBCU. You know, um, in the terrorism context, domestic violent extremism is uh, our greatest threat uh, right now. Individuals are driven to violence because of ideologies of hate, uh, anti-government sentiments, false narratives, personal grievances. Uh- Yeah, I'm perplexed as well. Joining me right now is Newsweek opinion editor, the host of the Josh Hammer podcast, Josh Hammer. First of all, I want to say I love Maria's earrings. I love blue sapphires, right? I absolutely adore them. But I'm also seeing that her prompt is on a lower level. So this is on the fly. I want you guys to take a grain of salt what this podcaster has to say, who obviously, well... Let's break down what he says. Josh, your reaction uh, to the president and the Homeland Security Secretary saying that it is white supremacy as the number one threat in terms of terrorism to America. Maria, I mean, this is just profoundly cynical stuff. I mean, you know, Joe Biden might be claiming that he is not saying this because he is speaking at a Howard University commencement speech, but he obviously is saying it precisely because he is speaking at a Howard University commencement speech. In many ways, his decision to kind of give this line in front of a historical black university on their commencement day is kind of more broadly indicative of the broader kind of Democratic Party strategy, which is basically to kind of just do this intersectional coalition where you go into kind of various racial ethnic, national identity, minority groups, and try to just give crumbs. They're basically just trying to give crumbs to various perceived aggrieved interest groups in the run-up to the 2024 presidential election. And, you know, if you're Joe Biden and you're looking at the polling, you know, it probably actually makes some degree of sense. So, you know, a shockingly high percentage of Democrats... So here's where they lose the plot, okay? Let's just be straight. They're talking about how Joe Biden is saying all these things, right? And that white supremacy is an issue, Right. But they forget that Pete Buttigieg actually put out a thing as, uh, you know, <laughs> um, Secretary of Transport, I guess. I mean, what, what is it? Like he wants to be, I, I'm going to stop. I'm not going to be mean today. Who finding my inner zen right now. But sis, seriously, though, this is where they could say, well, Joe Biden would say something like that because he's implemented racist policies. Let me Let me elaborate. Pete Buttigieg said when the FAA director that they appointed, which was a loser, and he left, mind you, we have no FAA director right now. Absolutely none, right? None. Our airlines are going to crap, okay? I don't think I've flown as much as I did last week. Um, I was actually extremely exhausted. I think I've mastered the art of nodding off and not even realizing a plane is lifting off, but I can tell you the delays are insane. 
and that the pilots are upset. Why? Why don't we have an FAA director? Because he clearly explicitly, explicitly said the only person we're going to nominate has to fill the requirements of having the ability to be FAA director and knowledge, but they cannot be a man and they cannot be white. Now, if that's not racist, saying that based on your sex, you were excluded for a job and based on the color of your skin, you're excluded for a job. That's a big deal. How is he still in office? How is this okay? And why would they ever say that officially? That is an official position, yet no one on the mainstream media is talking about that. Missing the mark, this, this podcaster could have just said that. Bottom line is no one is saying this is not okay. Why? Because they're too busy for clicks, shits, and giggles. Oh, they're going to interview the prostitutes of Biden. Of course. Because then they're going to be like, how did she pay them? We're going to roll her up. I already know. I already know. Like this is the way they work. They go for hits and what's hot. And they talk about things that are so freaking, that's been assessed. We've already had that conversation years ago. Now you're making it like it's relevant. So why is no one upset? I've actually examined opportunities to see, is there anything I can do as one person that has been stating this legit? I've said this to so many people. Hey guys, the policy is no white male is able to apply for the job of FAA director. That's racist. Can we get that on the books? Can we have that on the record? And can we say that Joe Biden is trying to push a regime that is causing racial tension? Because that's exactly what we see. But the white supremacy is what they're pushing because I want him on the record to say, well, the reason we did this is because we have white supremacy. No. So we're going to have an idiot like you did before that other idiot you had that had everything fail. Our airlines are important to be able to get things done. People need to fly to family. People need to fly for business. This is a major transportation issue, an infrastructure issue. And you know, what's fantastic. The more they have an interim FAA director, the more shit they can get away with, like flying out migrants. See, I posted that, and now what's driving the news? Look at all these planes flying them. No shit. I saw it with my own eyes. I even took, I'm not going to share the pictures. I took pictures. I've been analyzing it. Our transportation industry is under attack. You know, the East Palestine thing obviously was part of the plan. Shouldn't have started there. Shouldn't have happened. Now, while it's to deploy water treatment plants to gain control, to assist with the Intel chip plant, hence why Ohio was important. The reason that it it kicked off with a pandemic of trail derailments. I mean, is the CDC examining this? That all the trains are getting sick and they're just toppling over? I mean, it's a pandemic. It all goes down to infrastructure infrastructure, infrastructure, which tomorrow we'll talk about because I had um, pretty cool conversations with a couple of people that I was in Detroit with. I'll, I'll share a conversation I had with a police officer who actually, you know, I was just hanging out, having a cigarette and he was like, Hey, can I pick your brain? And it's like, I didn't even tell, I didn't even converse to the point where he would know to pick my brain. 
anything. But I was led into a couple bits of information in regards to infrastructure that um, that was interesting. And this is tangible infrastructure. Cyber infrastructure, done. We have no digital sovereignty. DHS is playing stupid. I mean, I don't even know how Mallorca sits there with a straight face and has a conversation because that guy doesn't even know what's going on. He's trying to move pieces around. And keep in mind, the people that are at the top barely know what the people at the bottom are doing. And I want to make that clear. Right. For those of you that are in business and have a business, maybe even large corporations, because I know a lot of you do. You don't know what your foot soldiers are doing. You just sign off on things because it aligns with whatever policy document you have. He abs- has absolutely no idea what's going on unless it's to assist certain organizations that I find very troubling that are cooperating with DHS. Extremely troubling. You know, and this and this will go back and, and we'll evaluate it today to the ICMME, which I'll explain what that is and I'll explain to you what's going on in, at the border and how these things were planned. Again, World War II, pivotal moment. So let's listen to what he has to say as we continue. Democrats say that they are not enthusiastic about Joe Biden's re-election bid. A shockingly high percentage of Democrats say they simply do not want Joe Biden to run for re-election. But if you go back to the 2020 Democratic Party primaries, it was actually black voters, especially in South Carolina in the third in the nation primary, that actually saved Joe Biden's floundering campaign. You know, he finished in fifth place in New Hampshire. He did not win the Iowa caucuses. It was, it was actually black voters in South Carolina that, that, that really kind of disproportionately are the reason why we have Joe Biden as president today. Today. So that's kind yeah. of my read here. He's really just trying to fire up his black face. But, but you know, to your point, Maria, it's obviously it's absurd. There was an Afghan terrorist who was caught kind of going over our post Title 42 wide open porous southern border right. literally yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. So there are so many other threats here to do so is deeply cynical. But we should unfortunately expect nothing less from the current Democratic Party and President Joe Biden. Yeah, and for all the reasons that you just laid out, uh, Douglas Schoen is out with an op-ed in the journal this morning saying, well, how about Michelle Obama if uh, Joe Biden uh, doesn't run or or, uh, fails to complete this campaign by the presidency? Former CIA director, meanwhile, John Brennan, uh, spoke under oath uh, to the uh, intelligence and uh, the judiciary. Yes, he did. And I'm going to tell you guys some stuff from behind closed doors. You ready for some tea? I hope you guys got your tea. I got my boba tea this morning with my Phoebe, right? Because for me, for Mother's Day, when and thank you to all the mothers out there who have done an exceptional jo- a job raising their children. And I know many mothers out there. And I just wanted to say this. There are many mothers that I meet, and I actually heard a story of a mother at the event that um, uh, FEC had put on where they have lost their kids to addiction. I don't know if you heard, she lost her her child to fentanyl overdoses. And you, you all know that, um, you know, my brother, he, he was an addict when he was young and he was afforded the opportunity with love and affection to get his life back in order. And the minute he was hit hard with a diagnosis, he took his own life, falling back into the same pocket, almost in, like same day. Like the day he fell off the wagons, the day he f- fell off the earth. So... The reason I say this is because I know there's a lot of mothers out there that feel that they have failed as parents. Maybe their kids are too liberal. Maybe they're too brainwashed. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But you've done an exceptional job because today you are exactly where you are 
because of every choice you made. And your children are exactly where they are because of the choices they made. And your job as a parent is just to be there. So for all of you there that have feel as, feel as failures, because I do, you know, I say that. I feel like I failed as a parent because I was an absent parent. I traveled a lot. I, you know, obviously we all, when we're, we're when we're married, we trust um, our, you know, better half to be uh, as equal of a parent, right? No one expects that ever. But, you know, I feel like a failure. Many are like, how are you a failure? You know, is that? And it's like, no, you know, you can't shake that away. And I know a lot of parents out there feel that. And, um, and then there's women that feel that they're failures because they didn't have kids. Hey, man, I'm 45. Maybe I might just pop another one too. Or maybe I want to, right? I'm just saying, like, don't feel bad. We have technology for many. We have a lot of children out there because I, I, I saw a lot of the messages that were coming in. And, I, you know, um, don't, don't fret. Uh, being a mother, obviously, we all know is equating to, you know, carrying a human and creating it in the dark, Right. And then going through nine months of having something that's almost like a parasite, but technically it is, right? And takes from you and takes from you, but you give it wholeheartedly. And um, all of us, you know, and when you're a parent, there's no handbook, right? It's just you. And you try your best. And a lot of people try to just, you know, create their child to be something that they wanted to be, you know, we live vicariously through our children. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, only because I felt that, you know, um, I, you know, I'm Greek, so we're culturally attuned, right? So I just wanted to, 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 to say that to all of you, those that haven't had children, it's okay because you're a mother to your neighbor, you know, to your nieces, you know, to, to, to your, your siblings even, right? <laughs> we feel like we're parents or you might be that mother figure to somebody else. So uh, carrying the child and going through the birth pain is actually a curse, right? It's supposed to be painful uh, when you hit this realm, right? <laughs> but I, you know, I just want all of you to know all women out there, women, women, like biological, to all of you, you're fantastic mothers in any capacity. So I just wanted to say that because, you know, even this morning going through some of the messages that I see, and I really try to get through them. I, I hope people understand just how many I have um, on messages. I, you are perfect. And, you know, and I'm speaking from a position where I feel like I'm a failure, even though, you know, another person be like, no, you don't know failure. And it's like, that it's it, everybody's thoughts are different. So I just wanted to say that for Mother's Day. And also, my motherly instincts uh, kicked in when he was behind closed doors. I'm going to tell you some stuff. It's probably going to piss off a lot of people right now. But the people that were questioning him are really not on our side. Uh, hard questions were had where he couldn't wiggle out. But, you know, Jim Jordan, damn, man, why'd you whitewash shit? You know, the, the conversations that were had, you know, were, were trying to be steered away to having them more wholesome. And uh, I want to say this. I, um, and this dovetails into something that I wanted to say. Um, I got a letter from a young man in Washington State today. Young boy. I could tell from the writing in his picture. And... Um, so if Alex is listening, hey, Alex, um, he asked me 
he said, I see that all these presidents in the past have caused severe issues to our country. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the letter in front of me. And he said, uh, so when we're done and we win, we've already won, Alex. You just don't see it yet. But when we're done and we win, he said, will we erase the history of the Bushes and the Clintons and the Obamas? You should never erase history. It's almost like trying to erase a bad experience. You should never be ashamed of failures. You should never be ashamed of, you know, hey, so-and-so was a slave owner. All right, we're not slave owners now. You have to see the scar to be able to develop. So it's a hard no. In fact, I think they should be showcased like the Chinese wall, right? They got to be seen from eons away. So always embrace the mistakes you make as a person and as a nation, showcase them, pride them, you know, like you know, when we had Robert E. Lee did some good stuff, did a lot of bad stuff. Remember back then the way the dynamics were between people, he was in charge. He could have probably just raped women too. You don't know that, but we learn from mistakes. We learn the good and the bad. That way we can discern what is correct and what's not. So I want people to understand that, right? So now let's discern the, <laughs> Tori, you shouldn't be done. I totally am. Watch me do this. A lot of the questions that were posed to John Brennan were anticipated by myself. See, John Brennan had, you know, obviously, well, the agency had a bunch of communications with a lot of counter intel assets that they had. You know, among our ranks in the United States that play influencers, a lot of them play, you know, opposite sides and don't tell. They actually play their role really well, looking like they're MAGA patriots. Absolutely. But in fact, they're handled. So could you imagine, right? Imagine John Brennan and other clowns like him having assets that were playing the role of MAGA, allegedly, but simply there to be eyes and ears, sequester and filter. And then their most prized, fantastic people say, you know what? The Russia hoax real, worked real well. I think knowing from, you know, what I do on Twitter or whatever other platform I'm on with a, a podcast or my writing or my chats, right? I think people would more likely take on the idea that the Hunter Biden laptop is Russian disinfo. You should get on the record and say that. And so, you know, that's plausible. Four years got away with the Russia hoax. Why not? I mean, you know, you taught me well kind of thing. I suggest, and here's my analysis. You know, I think this should happen. I mean, this is, this is, you know, John Brennan had those communications with people that he trusted he trusted vengeance is a great freaking power, great source of power. Vengeance is ugly, but it can be super fire. And so I guess he went with it and they started talking about it and they said this would be fantastic. But little did they know 
that it was the biggest ass trap ever. Because, you know, things had already set in motion. The actual people that probably suggested we should push with the Russia hooks were probably the ones that were, I don't know, ensuring that the laptop manifests itself. And that's how you win. Patient and take your time. In the meantime, you wreck things as you can. So could you picture that? That the same people that were trying to get all that information into the public sphere correctly, maybe, hey, maybe someone paid a prostitute and said, maybe you should convince, you know, Hunter Biden to drop it off. Maybe the person that actually orchestrated the perfect setting for that laptop to be dropped off were the same ones that were pretending to be allies to the people they served years ago and told them, yeah, let's go with Russian disinfo. Can you see the box? There's no way out. Now, while he was in the hot seat, like many of them, a lot of questions were being posed and we even had our own people whitewashing the questions that were being asked in order to minimize disclosures, in order to ease the transcripts that are classified, of course, for now. Little did he know. If that hip hurts now, wait till you see later. How about that? Cast me outside. How about that? So when getting feedback during the interrogations, a lot of things were said, mostly trying to justify actions as means of maintaining national security and reinforcing that we are safe. Listen to what they said. Committee last week, uh, Mike Turner is uh, taking depositions on why the 51 spies who lied signed their name on that letter uh, that suggested that the Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. And Mike Turner joined me yesterday, the head of the Intelligence Committee, to talk about what this administration is doing uh, in, in terms of uh, Americans versus the real threats outside, like China. Here's what the chairman of the Intelligence Committee told me yesterday. Does China had tries to before we hear that? Why did the 51 spies didn't I say that that's oh, I did, didn't I? Maybe we should sue them because then we could get rid of our 33 trillion dollar debt, just sue the shit out of them. That would be a nice byproduct aside. But maybe some bitch sent him an email or <laughs> shouldn't have sent him and said, Yo, I think this is the best avenue. I'm the best. Here, take this just hypothetically speaking, of course. And then they just ran with it. And then they had those conversations. And then they were like, yeah, we'll just peddle the Russia hoax. Everyone's on board. Ha, ha, ha. See, this is why you have to seem weak when you are strongest. How'd that work out? To get a foothold in our country itself, uh, the FBI, the, the, the administration, you know, they're, they've been more interested in saying that Americans are a threat to America than that China is a threat to America. And here's what he said about the testimony that he's been getting from these folks. He took a deposition from Brennan and Clapper, and he's going through the 51 spies who signed that letter. Watch. These people signed on to a letter without any evidence whatsoever uh, that there was any Russian inter intervention or that, that this was Russia misinformation uh, solely for the purposes of helping Joe Biden in his debate. We had uh, uh, Brennan, the former uh, CIA director, who, along with uh, Clapper, the head of the ODNI, was you know, one of the big perpetrators of the Russia hoax against the Trump administration who admitted in his deposition, well, this was just political. Well, what that translates to is that this was just a lie. 
So, Josh, there you go. They had to admit it under oath. They just wanted to help Biden win the debate. And that's exactly what Biden did. And scene. That's the end of that script. That's the way the cookie crumbles, right? So they wanted it political. Okay, fine. We just wanted to do that. So who told you? Well, we got this idea. Where'd you get the idea from? Nah. Probably the same person that fucking paid hookers, right? Ah, ha, ha. To beat the enemy, you have to be the enemy. See, and, and that's true. You cannot beat an enemy you do not know. You have to be the enemy. How many times do you see like these Miami Vice movies and they're just like, they're the drug dealer. You know, they were the ones with like the shirts and the hair and the chains and freaking doing the dealings and stuff because that's how you win. That is how you loosen the soil from the roots and you tug. So a lot's going on. A lot is going on. A lot of people missing too. Did he use the, the, the 51 signatures as proof that Biden's son, Hunter Biden, did not do anything wrong and that he has no knowledge of any business deals? Uh, I mean, Maria, I mean, like, what does it say about the state of the intelligence community? What does it say about the state of the deep state apparatus more broadly that 51 of the nation's highest, most decorated spies were willing to sign on to a letter with no substantive underpinning whatsoever, simply because a couple of Biden campaign operatives who one of whom, but by the way, happens to be the current secretary of state, simply literally said in a, in a smoking gun document that I hope sees the light of day soon, literally said simply because they wanted Joe Biden to have a talking point in a debate with Donald Trump when Trump inevitably brought up. And by the way, that's actually exactly what happened when this came up in the second or third. No, simply what happened is that the 51 spies trusted their best game theorists and they fucked up. See, when they have, see, let, let me tell you something about blackmail and keeping someone in a compromised position. We've talked about this before. They will take your kids and they will hold them hostage. They, they attempted that with my friends, Gavin and Millie, right? You got to shut up. We're going to take you in, right? But what if they took all your wages, all your savings, everything, and you're destroyed completely and they have you by the cojones. You have two choices. You play their game or you play their game in order to get them, you know, vengeance and all. So this is how things happen. When they find someone compromised, normal, natural response is self-preservation. I'm screwed anyway. I'm dead in the water anyway. They're saying you'll be fine as long as you participate. But we got to check. We're testing you. Sure. Test away, they say. That is how it is. You've got to, you know, many times people are like, I'm, this is stupid. We can, you can't change the field. It's like trying to play ice hockey on grass, right? Right now, this is what we're doing. We're playing ice hockey on grass. And you know you're at a disadvantage because your puck is not moving the way it should like it would on ice. And you say, all right, we're going to play in your field, but I'm going to play the game. And even if I'm in a disadvantage, this is how we're going to win. I'm going to play within the goalpost that you set until I have the opportunity to turn this bitch into ice and have my slide puck into the goal. That is how you do it. You can't change the playing field, but you can change the game in that field. But you have to be very crafty. You have to understand 
your limitations. You have to understand where you will fail and you have to be patient. And this is coming from someone who is extremely impatient. If I want something, I want it yesterday. And I'm sure a lot of people are at that point. But what's going on here? Missing Hunter Biden whistleblowers. Let's see what else is going on here presidential debate when donald trump kind of voiced it joe biden said oh you know 50 of the top uh, ic spies have said this is pure russian disinformation i mean you know talk about circular logic you know, talk about kind of you know a fallacy of logical reasoning you literally get people to lie and then you use the lie to kind of swat down your opponent's debate tactic. the whole thing just stinks to high heaven frankly it utterly yeah. and completely stinks to high heaven and you know i think that you're totally correct and, and, and mike turner is correct to kind of take it back to the origins of the russia collusion delusion yeah. going back to Michael Flynn in 2016, 20, all this kind of pieces together here. But, you know, from a constitutionalist perspective here, you know, we need to see Antony Blinken, I, I frankly, impeached. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think it is long overdue to see articles of impeachment filed against him here. He is obviously the guy at the center of this. We're not really hearing yeah. enough about Antony Blinken himself, I think. Well, that's true. And, uh, you know, we're going to see uh, potentially a testimony from him because I know that the House Oversight uh, wants to speak with him, as, as does judiciary. Meanwhile, explosive charges yesterday. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer joined me and said that the White House is intimidating informants and whistleblowers. And one of the informants may be missing. Here's what he told me yesterday on Sunday Morning Futures. Incredible. Watch. Nine of the 10 people uh, that we've identified that have very good knowledge with respect to the Bidens, they're, they're one of three things, Maria. They're either currently in court, they're currently in jail, or they're currently missing. They fear for their lives. Not only are the Biden lawyers and the Biden White House intimidating them, the media is trying to intimidate and discredit them. Now, Congressman Tim Burchett, who's also on the Oversight Committee, was with me earlier in the program. He confirmed to me that the informant is indeed missing, Josh. This is chilling. Yeah. So, you know, I watched your interview with Congressman Burchett. You know, I think that the congressman is exactly right, by the way. So if you kind of look at the checks that the legislative branch has on the executive branch, the subpoena power we might think of as a mini check. But, you know, the two kind of greater checks that the Constitution's framers gave to Article One, gave to the Congress, are the power of the purse, which Congressman Burchett, I think, accurately, uh, accurately alluded to. And then also what I just alluded to in the context of Antony Blinken, which is the impeachment power. So, you know, th those are those are the basic tools right now at Congress's disposal when the executive branch is being completely uncooperative as the case currently appears to be here. But, you know, look, if you, if you kind of step back from the minutia a little bit and try to analyze this from a slightly broader perspective, I mean, Maria, what is actually going on here? I mean, you and I both know exactly what is going on here, which is this is Hunter Biden, who obviously is at the epicenter of all this Hunter Biden and, you know, the rest of kind of the Biden crime family, James Biden, the brothers, the uncles, you know, but Hunter really in particular here, and what they are doing, what everyone kind of at the top of the IC community with the White House, the FBI, Chris Ray, what they are all doing right now is they are pulling out all the stops imaginable to hide the president of the United States' personal family from getting possible public scrutiny. And okay, that's a lie. They're trying to hide Obama because they need Michelle. Big Mike. Let the male memes fly and let me tell you. I urge every single one of you, as far as my voice goes, 
always have that conversation. It's Obama they're covering for because once Biden falls, Obama falls because Biden did all this under his guise as his vice president. Are you telling me that Barack Hussein Obama had no idea what Hunter Biden was doing in Peach 44? Do you guys remember when I set up that website? You should. You should look at the date. It was quite interesting. Now, uh, having said that, they're protecting Obama, not Biden. They're pulling all the stops. Or maybe not. Ray is just the guy that's watching the train wreck happen. I'm telling you. And he's doing just enough. Rays of light. He can't hide it. And yeah, maybe the person that gave the suggestion might be under fire. <laughs> but the person never said they weren't. So that's gonna be interesting. Again, let me reiterate this again. To take down your enemy, you must know your enemy. And now these 51 spies that lied are still somewhere sitting on boards and we're having conversations behind closed doors, aren't we, Jim Jordan? Whitewashing the questions. While the other people in that room were like, what the heck? What the, the non-seasons or what the heck? They're not trying to cover for Joe Biden. Ultimately, they want to shelter Obama. That's it. Oh, we should file articles of impeachment. That's what losers say. That's what idiots say. What? So we can have the same damn pony show of what? Having hearings? And that's going to help us how? We're going to be paying for that. You think I want to pay for an HBO production of having impeachment against Biden? Get out of here. Let's just go straight to the arrests of a president that's no longer president because it happened all under his guise and he signed off of everything. And USAID, IOM, I mean, we're just going to get into the nitty gritty of it. But this is exactly it. When I hear people say, let's impeach him, let's file articles of impeachment, you know it's because your Republicans want some money. It's not about taking care of anything. It's about money. It is about money. Oh, look, I said something smart. Suddenly, they get a big fat check. Oh, look, he's on our side. We should get money for him so he could be reelected. Not on our side. If you want to get this done, well, class action suits are very effective. I'm going to say this. In my whole time of just sitting in the background and focusing on things to educate the people with, I never thought that I would ever in my life take any role where I was actually actively spearheading. One, people don't know this. I sound, I am, I am super friendly, <laughs> but I, I'm extremely an introvert. I like doing things in close proximity. I don't like to be out there. I hate that people can recognize me. I really do because it makes me uncomfortable because all my life, nothing. But I'm going to tell you this. Wait till you see what we were able to do. And, and, and this is a conversation I had with Joe Oatman, who I simply adore. And I'm not going to talk about it much. But this summer is going to be so hot. I'm telling you, so hot. There is no escape. 
it's like, I mean, you saw how nicely Brendan and Clapter walked into that box. And I've been saying that for years. You just need to be patient. You just need to get the person. And here's the thing. They build their own box. That's even the coolest part, right? And you're watching it and you're watching every single step they make, just like they watch your steps, every single step you make, right? They know where you're going to end up. But when they have an illusion of where they're going, they start to take control and make their own boxes. I, I, I'm trying to say this without saying this. But it's about to go super down this summer. We have got it to the point where rather than us ask for hearings, we're just going straight for the throat. And this 51 spies, what did I say weeks ago? Hey, we should just sue them for lying and wasting our time and money and coercion, and political, and, and, and. We the people, wait a minute, don't we have standing? Yes, we do. And you saw that the lawsuit with elections in Georgia now has standing. Remember back in August of 2021 when people were like, oh, that's so dumb, it's just about Georgia Supreme Court, and it's like, you're so dumb. That means there's no general grievance doctrine. That means we could get it done. So, who are they protecting? Obama. Why are they throwing going all in for Joe? Because when Joe goes down, <laughs> obviously it's Obama. It's all in the backdrop, obviously, of Biden's re-election campaign, which is already floundering. The polls are already not good. We saw that Washington Post. He's never getting reelected. Done. We already know that. So I don't know why. This is the problem that I have with pundits, that they say things that is so out of pocket and, and unnecessary. The left doesn't want Biden. All you have to do is, I heard someone amazing this morning on the phone that I was talking to. They were just getting coffee and, and they said, oh, I thought that was the price. I was like, damn, coffee went up. That's Biden inflation for you. It just keeps hammering those things in. Snide comments, you guys. You know, when people are wearing masks, I'm like, we're still playing this game. You know, hey, you know, so-and-so passed away. This morning I found out that someone that I've grown to know at my post office lost both their parents and they know it's from the vaccine. Everybody does. We need to be starting these conversations on the side with people. We need to start hammering down snide comments like that. Hey, Biden inflation. This is how you get conversations going. This is how you change voters. This is how you make them see. You know, sometimes I'll have conversations and I'll be like, well, you know what I figured out? Trump was right about anything. Everything Trump said was right. I, I had a conversation with a lady in a smoking area somewhere in Detroit and she was wearing a million masks. And I said, well, you're a smoker, so that's why you didn't get it. But there's research on that. You could look at it. I was like, you know, Trump was right about anything. Anything he said, he was right. And you know what she said? I don't care what happens. I'm voting for that man when he comes in. I wouldn't have done it before. I'm going to do it now. And this is, this is how you have conversations. You don't bombard them. I mean, you can bombard people when you're in the conversation where you're just like debating shit and you're going at it. But when you're on the street, when you're at the supermarket, you get your tally and you're like, damn, all I bought was a bag of food. And now like, guys, it's like so expensive, right? It's freaking expensive. You know, you could tell the guy at the checkout counter, damn, I wish Trump was president. At least then I could afford groceries. This Biden stuff is out of control. You only have to say it. They might not agree with you, but it'll be in their in the back of their mind. And then when the next person says it, it'll reinforce that. This is how you conduct, and you know, this is actually the premise of psychological operations, but it's also disseminating information correctly. Remember the stickers. How big of a deal was that? 
That was a very big deal. One by one, just a side comment, not too rude, just kind of like in the conversation. Every day you have that opportunity, you should be kicking off those conversations. It's just planting these seeds, you know, earwigging some thoughts, and then it gets revisited later. So when they see things like that CNN interview, they'll be like, damn, I guess Trump was right. Because when I have these conversations, I'm like, you know, Trump was... Trump was right about everything, the, the, the COVID, the everything. He was right. And they mocked him at the beginning when he said, oh, it's nothing. You know, there's all, they were fine. And then they put him in a box. And then all of you out there were like, he could have told us he killed people. He's not you. You made your own damn choice. You made your choice. Don't you dare give responsibility to others for the choices you make. Now, Moving along. So witnesses are missing, right? Witnesses are missing. Where are they? Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Prostitutes are being questioned. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. But what won't be fine is the fact that people feel demoralized. You know, we're seeing everything play out the way it is. We're seeing wars and we have a ton of rumors of wars, right? We're seeing a lot of people kicking off things. There's a, a big problem with refugees and migrants globally. Globally. The U.S. has now demanded that India condemn persistent religious violence, right? They're doing that. They're literally doing that. It is the most insane thing. Imran Khan, okay? That was crazy. Did you guys, I mean, I was traveling, but come on, you know, Imran Khan was going to court and he wasn't going to court or he was. And then the judge at the court left for lunch. Okay. Kid you not. This is a scene. I'm just scene of this film. Okay. Court's happening. Judge is like, I'm going to lunch. Judge comes back and they're like, yo, Imran Khan was kidnapped. He's like, well, I was at lunch. I don't know anything. And it's like, dude, you signed the order off on it. What are you talking about? I was eating lunch. Legit, that's what happened. Imran Khan is the Trump of Pakistan. Pakistan, if it destabilizes, the Asian continent is screwed. Completely screwed. And the U.S. knows that. And why are they doing that? Why is this happening? Why are the globalists pushing that? Because if you can destabilize Pakistan, you destabilize India, which causes disruption to China, causes disruption to Russia. So that way they can pool their resources to reestablish the European Union and keep the hold on Africa. It's pretty simple. Distractions. People are protesting. They're at the Supreme Court in Islamabad, right? Having a sit-in demanding that, you know, you know, he's released. It's, 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 this is for corruption. And, you know, sometimes I think, and I've told you this, ISIS is one of the most dangerous intelligence agencies out there. It will trump the CIA any day the CIA knows that because they're viciously trained. I mean, you know, Barack Hussein Obama trained at Karachi too. I mean, I've been there a couple of times myself. They're pretty vicious and they're pretty good at what they do. 
very good. I mean, remember when General Flynn was being interrogated at Eric Holder's law offices in the basement? There were ISI agents that they were recording and wiretapping all those conversations that he supposedly had with his attorneys. Yeah, that's what's up. That's exactly what happened. No sugarcoat on that. And let's not forget the Awan brothers, huh? top ISIS, intelligence, assets from Pakistan. But we're going to pretend that didn't happen either. The world is going berserk, berserk. The military ordered his arrest. This is a psychological operation on the state of Pakistan to cause disruption. You know what they should do? I'm like all for this, and I'm going to speak this into reality. They need to start up in that Kashmir shit. Because you want fires? Let's go. Let's go. Once you lose hold of the Kashmir fighting, you're, it's game over. If I was Mahdi, I would totally be doing that right now. Because starting that disruption again, even though it's a hot topic for Indians and Pakistanis together, right? You know, let's get the Bengalis in. Let's get going. This is how you, you want you want wars? Let's play this out. We haven't settled this, so let's activate that. And that's where the West loses because they've got way too much invested. They need that hot pocket. See, this is, this is how they operate. They create chaos to then come in, sweep in, and fix it. But I like to coordinate chaos. I'm actually okay with chaos. I'm okay with going headfirst into the unknown. Not a lot of people are doing that. So... As we move along, the last thing that I want to say for today, before we move on to the real topic of discussion that is necessary, is that your media will be pushing things, a lot of things, a lot of things. Rick Perry, for example, he wants to be, you know, he wants to be governor, right? Well, we should all read Vice and Victory. We should all read about Perry and Ali Akbar and all the twinkle fairies down there. Dead serious. We should see how, you know, all these news are coming out. We should see how there was a tornado and President Trump didn't go, but Ron DeSantis was there hanging out with Pence, just having a conversation, chilling. Oh, it was an act of God keeping Trump from there. No, it was an act of God to see exactly. I mean, the storms are pretty important. It's got to be at the right place at the right time. Maybe others, other conversations had to happen. Iowa, I did say Iowa, Iowa, something's coming in Iowa, you'll see. You'll see how that works out. Remember that Iowa caucus, so important, mm, is it? Now, Title 42 was going to end, isn't going to end. They want to, you know, a judge is thinking, oh, do I hold the Biden administration in contempt, you know, for Title 42, Title 42, right? Well, that's not what we need to talk about. We need to talk about invasion. So we're going to talk about wolves. And what better music than to play talking to wolves it's pretty cool so let's take a four minute hiatus listening to this to set the mood for what we're going to be talking about in this next hour
we should always dance with wolves. I mean, they could teach you some really good moves. And when they show their teeth, you can knock them out. So let me tell you about these wolves. Let's talk about these wolves because you're going to be introduced to an organization and a history of an organization so you can see just how long they wanted you to trust their plan. Okay? Let's do this. Because, you know, there's a lot of people out there that confuse me too. Damn, they've always been part of this plan. They want people to trust a plan. But do the people know what plan we're talking about? So... As we know, World War II was a pivotal moment. I guess 1940 to 1956 were the most um, most important dates in the plan getting completely set in motion. Everyone did their, their homework and set it up. I'm going to introduce you to an organization. Used to be independent and six years ago under Obama joined the UN. What? Yes. The International Organization for Migration. The International Organization for Migration, just so you know, is an intergovernmental organization that focuses on migration-related issues. It was established in 1951, and as of six years ago, it began to operate under the United Nations system as, and has 173 member states. Think about that. Member states. I thought that Uganda is a country, not a state. I thought the United States was a country, not a state. Pay attention because words mean everything. The IOM also works to provide services and advice concerning migration to governments and migrants alike. How many of you were around when we destroyed Yugoslavia, when the West decided that they're going to take them out? Do you guys remember who the enemy was when we totally rocked the Balkan nations. Do you guys remember? Who was the enemy? Obviously, it was Russia. Russia, 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 Russia. It's like poor Russia. Damn, right? Because that just happened with the fall of the USSR, right? Do you guys remember? For those of you that, I mean, I was a kid. I remember some of it. I remember that they had put people in concentration camps and were taking them out due to their religion. No, it didn't happen. It happened in the 90s, guys. It totally happened. And who did that? The West. Who was blamed? Russia. And who helped with that? The International Organization for Migration. What? What? Wait. Now, just so you understand, the IOM works to allegedly provide services and advice concerning migration to governments and migrants alike. It promotes international cooperation on migration. Any matter that has to do with migration, they're inserted. It also offers humanitarian assistance, of course, to migrants in need. Provides them caravans, foods, phones, IDs, shoes, you name it. And it supports migration management efforts and advocates for migrant rights, their needs, and support. Now, IOM, the first time it implemented its scary policy was during the war in the Balkans. And their involvement in our southern border needs to be talked about. See, while all of us talk about the left and talk about all these things and how these migrants are coming and the caravans that were coming in droves, again, not migration, it's called invaders, 
These are invaders. We need to talk about it. Invaders, invaders, invaders. The IOM is a dangerous entity. And you know, in the news now, well, Amy Pope is the first woman to head the UN's International Organization for Migration after beating her own boss, Antonio Vitorino, for the leadership vote. Who is this uh, Amy Pope? Pope has managed to convince countries in other regions where she has relentlessly campaigned, right, for a fresh vision to bring IOM into the 21st century. Joe Biden backs her. And she said, well, we're kind of stuck in old ways looking at migration. She says, we need to focus on climate change migration. One of the most significant challenges for our generation. Girl, you're 50. When anything pertaining to water shortages or shifting of climates and tundras, right, are around, you're not going to be here. And there's not going to be any migration. It's going to be like, you picked your card. So the question is, why push? Joe Biden and Blinken have totally pushed her forward. She's a veteran working for White Houses. In fact, in 2018, uh, Vitorino, just so you know, who was her challenger, in 2018, he won this acclamation for, you know, pushing the idea of anti-Muslim bigotry that allegedly President Trump had. <laughs> <laughs> which is another thing that a lot of people feed into. Especially Christians. They support people who don't support Christianity, yet Muslims love Christianity because it's the majority of their damn book. If you actually open the Quran, the Quran talks about Jesus more than the Bible, but I digress. Anyway, so this division thing, right? Division thing, division thing. We've got Pope in there now. She's in there. But let's see what she has to say from two months ago from Geneva, letting us know that she's a candidate for director. She won just now. And let's see what she has to say. She campaigned. I want you to pay attention. She campaigned. People have migrated throughout human history. At this moment in time, however, we are seeing more than 100 million people who are being displaced because of a range of factors, climate change, conflict, inequality, and it's time for a new approach to the way we respond to the needs of the most vulnerable people. IOM is well-placed not only to provide life-saving support to those most in need. We're ensuring that people have shelter, that they have access to services, that the most vulnerable people are protected from harm. Under my leadership, IOM will be deeply committed to responding to the devastating impacts of climate change on human mobility. Climate change is displacing millions of people today, whether it's a result of drought, flooding, rising sea levels, or lack of economic opportunity. Climate change is fueling the movement of people in ways we've never seen before. 
Migration is not just a problem to be solved, but it's an incredibly important opportunity. It leads to development within communities. It leads to the exchange of new ideas and skills. And importantly, it revitalizes dying economies. IOM needs fearless innovation to meet the challenges of the future. As a Director General, I will prioritize better use of our data, partnerships with the private sector, re-engaging with our member states, and putting migrants at the center of everything we do. My vision for IOM, as the world faces this historic displacement crisis, is to put people first, whether it's migrants, our member states, or the workforce, it's to refocus on human dignity. In this time of unprecedented human movement, we need new perspectives and new approaches. Together, we can deliver on the promise of migration. Yeah, that's a big bucket of no. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Migration happens all the time. I mean, the reason we got the Black Plague was because of migration, right? It was all these bacteria that were coming in from the Mongols, you know, with the, with the push from the Ottoman Empire, and everyone got sick, right? That's how it works. We migrate. People are just like, you know what? This, this, this country's too small for me. I'm out, right? This is migration. I want an opportunity. I want an adventure. That's migration. Climate change migration. Oh no, they're, they're, you know, their homes were flooded. That's okay. This is why in some regions they build houses on stilts. Human beings are very resilient and making them uh, a target of controlling where they go is a problem, right? It's a big, big problem. Why are we doing this? You know, and when I was watching her video just now, again, you know what hit me? My very first conversation with President Donald J. Trump when I was a kid. And I think I've spoken about this before. I was uh, leaving Madison Square, I was at Madison Square Garden, um, and uh, I, I, because I used to play on the steps there, because uh, my dad's business was right down there. And um, my dad came and got me, and he was like, oh, I'm gonna go across the street, um, you know, because his friend was there and he was like, hey, and he was like, just wait right here. And so um, when, when, I, when, when we were walking toward the, the, the corner right over there, through, from my left side, I saw a homeless guy. It was the first time I'd seen a homeless guy. First time, right? First, first time, first time. It was right outside Madison Square Garden, right? First time. And I, it shocked me. There was a guy with a cart. It was a, it was a, uh, what was it called? Wallbound? Was it Wallbound? No, it was um, Genevieve's cart. It was a Genevieve's cart. I don't even think they have Genevieve's anymore. It was a Genevieve's cart and he had like a garbage bag in there. He had clothes in there. He looked disheveled. And as I was holding my dad's hand, I let go and I run through a group of three men that were having a conversation, right? And I, didn't even pay attention. I just ran right through them, knocked them, knocked right through them. And I went there and I, I just saw this guy and I was like, you know, he was hungry. You know, he was eating some garbage and he was just hungry and he smelled really bad. And I was like, how is a person in that state? 
And so I, you know, I then ran back to my dad at that point. President Trump was with people. I had um, obviously knocked someone with his I love Greek coffee cup, whoever he was with standing there. I don't know what he was doing, waiting for a car probably. And um, I remember I went to my dad and my dad was already, when he saw me coming, he was already pulling out some money and he gave me five bucks. He had it in his hand as I approached him and I said, oh, no, 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 no. That'll just get him some, a lot of food to eat now. Because $5 for me then was allegedly a lot of money. That was a lot of ring pops I could get. But just for the record, that's I had already done the math. Damn, I could have more than 10 ring pops for my fingers. That's how I would calculate money back then, ring pops. And um, I said, no, 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 just give me your business card. You always need workers. If we give him a job, right, you know, then he'll have more food, not just for one day. And, you know, um, you know, he, he was like, all right. And uh, President Trump actually patted my head and he said, he, he was like, no, you're not, you're going to give him a big, give him a job. If you give people something, it'll finish. I was like, yeah, because he'll eat today and then he won't. He could give him a job. Do you have a job for him? Kind of, I don't even, I, you know, I didn't say that. I was thinking about it. He's like, hey, when you grow up, come find me for a job. <laughs> great thinking. I know that my dad was kind of like conversing with them. I'll get the dry cleaning. I'm over here, you know, probably when I made a mess. But that was the first instance. And exactly watching that video reminded me of that. They bring these people water in, in these containers and they set up these makeshift, you know, that are completely in squall refugee camps and, 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 give them medicine and say, oh, they need to be healthy, but they're living in dirt. Flies are on their food. You know, you're giving them water out of, you know, a gasoline box. You know, you're not helping the situation. You're doing a Band-Aid so that way you can justify your presence, right? And that's not how you fix it. You want to help? You give them power. You give them electricity without saying, hey, we're going to build this for you and then we're going to rape your nation if you don't pay back. You know what the best thing is? Just leave it alone. You know, you can teach someone how to fish, they say, right? And they'll be able to eat for a living. And that's key. It's giving people the opportunity to figure it out, right? That's the way it is. And, you know, opportunities, that's the one thing that we all have in our country is that we're not promised a great life. We're not promised as a nation to give out yellow brick roads that you have and mansions. But one thing you have in the United States of America is equal opportunity. That was the premise of creating this nation. Now, migration. Who are they to say who needs to move where? Like we have a bunch of waves of migration, right? For example, back in World War II, a lot of people migrated from, you know, the Mediterranean to the coasts of Africa. They entered Lebanon, you know, Libya and Syria. You had a wave of Italians and Greeks move there because they were terrified of the war. War does displace people, right? And in the age of information now, where we're all connected and we know where we're going, it's not much of an adventure, right? It's not. Or we had refugees coming, you know, from the Ottoman period when they were being slaughtered and they were released to the four corners of the earth. Or when we had the Balkan Wars. I mean, how many Slavs, you know, migrated to Poland, Germany, England? How many did we rescue to bring to the U.S.? I mean, is that like guilt? 
that we, you know, bring people over from places where these wars are orchestrated. Because if you kill the Yugoslavian bloc, then you can control the Balkans and take power away from them being independent. I mean, that's how we got Ukraine, right? Equal opportunity means that I have the same opportunity to succeed. Every nation has that within their cultural norms. Why mess with that? Leave them alone. Those, the strongest will survive. Those that wish to develop will survive. It's not your job to coddle everyone. It's not your job to be in wars that are thousands of years old. It's not your job. You work with what you got. I mean, look at Louisiana. All right. Let's take New Orleans, for example. They're below sea level, below sea level, but they build buildings that are worth billions of dollars below sea level. And they have all their ports below sea level and they have their capital and banks below sea level and they have their mansions and boats. I mean, look at Florida. They're literally building things on swamps. And you would think, wait, if you're thinking future, why are you building on this? If you're thinking climate change, why the hell are you building on this? Resilience happens. This is why in out in the islands of Bali or whatever, you're going to see houses on stilts because they know that they flood. They know that they swell. It's not anyone's job to tell people how to live or where to move or what to do. Our job is to, within our own vicinity, provide equal opportunity for everyone to shine and do what they want and love what they want. And, you know, before I get into explaining more of how what we're having at the southern border is being actually funded by us and foreign nations, which I, if I was in charge of NATSEC Mallorcas, I would call that a national security threat. Because if foreign nations are funding invaders that are collapsing our infrastructure, taking money we don't have, I mean, how much more are you going to print? I mean, I don't know what is a national security threat if that's not it. What is a national security threat if that's not it? You know, migration and, and just being a person, I think, you know, I see it, let's, let's take it into a more sequestered, you know, you have your nation and it provides opportunity. I'll tell you how I did my parenting, just, just to put it out there, right? So my eldest, as you guys know, finished high school early and then she went to college. She signed up for college and while she's in college, she's like, yo, I'm going into the army. And I was like, what? Don't you want to like do college or something? Nope, I want to go serve. And I was like, what? But Trump's not going to be in office for a while and you'd have to serve under someone. She's like, mom, I'm going to do it. And she'll tell you, I told her that. This is 2018. I freaking told her that. There's going to be a hiatus <laughs> and it may be sticky. And she didn't care. She wanted to go. But she finishes her degree in like math and biology and then she got whatever other degrees through training with the U.S. government, right, doing her job. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, in a, in a couple of years, you know, her contract ends. I mean, it's 2018, six, yeah, no, no, it's ending like, yeah, in two years. So what do you want to do? You know, as parents, you ask your kids, like, you got this degree, now what are you going to do? Are you going to be a barista with your French degree? Like, what are you going to do? She doesn't have French. She has math. And you know what she said? I don't know. And I was okay with that. 
obviously my family was not, right? All my family chimed in. Now you should go over here and we'll help you. You should do this. You should do that. It's almost like my mom saying, stop your podcast and just go to a cubicle. It's like, the, yeah, we're way past that. Put your head down and just, you know, it's like, yeah. So this is the type of thing that parents do, right? To all of us, right? And this is how the IOM is acting to all the nations. They're telling people what to do and where to go and how to live their lives. They're superimposing on them a manufactured, manufactured necessity of movement in order to control factors. Migration is natural. You don't need an orchid, you know, you don't need a conductor of the symphony of I'm migrating people. You need to let them be happy. Kind of like I said, putting it on a personal level, my child, I was like, hey, you'll figure it out. You're happy with what you do. Why don't you intern, do a couple different things, see what you like. I'm here for you. No one's like dropping you off the cliff. You know, I'll feed you, which I do, <laughs> right? I'll wash your clothes. I will take care of you until you are ready to know what you want to do. Don't listen to anybody else influencing you or telling you this is what you need to do. You need to do something that you're happy doing, right? And that's the thing. Migration was always about happiness. It wasn't driven by economic factors. They didn't have someone like Hope telling them where they need to go, right? People, there were many times in history that people were found in locations where their land just turned into desert. I did a whole show on how China is, you know, pushing back deserts by terraforming deserts, right? Because it's almost like an infection. Deserts are literally a, a, a geological phenomenon that you can um, kind of simile to an expanding rash, okay? So these were people that were brave enough to be like, yo, I'm going to go across from east to west or yo, I kind of like curry spices. I think I want to go to India and like, I totally vibe with that. Or I want to take a boat and just go somewhere. Or you know what? I just want to go into, you know, the Andes mountains, carve out a hole in the caves and sit in the snow and freaking just kill bunnies all day or goats, whatever's on there and just live like that. People, people were in positions of wanting to challenge themselves. And this is why they would migrate. You know, people in other countries that want to migrate here are like, yo, you know what I want to do? I want to play basketball. Like, you know, Yanis from like Milwaukee Bucks is playing Greece. He's like, yo, I want to go to NBA. I want sneakers. I want all this stuff. I want to fall into that CAA hole, whatever they found alluring. And they come. You know, Tom McDonald migrated from Canada, right? The, the, the migration happens because you want to. You want to change. You want to change. Kind of like the Mexicans that are swimming through the borders. It's like, yo, I can't get a job here, so I'm just going to run in there illegally. You can't do that. In this day and age, you can't do that because every single country has a set up method of supporting its citizens. And unfortunately, in this day and age, when we see someone suffering, we can't just leave them suffer. So then we have to pay for that. So this is why we have borders, right? This is why the United States is the only nation that accepts everybody and can't say shit about it or else it's racist. But every other nation doesn't accept us. I dare any of you to try to migrate to any country. Pick a country, any country, and they'll be like, yeah, um, you can't come even if it's English speaking. And here we are bringing people that speak no English and inserting them and embracing them and giving them shoes, phones, a house, and a salary of $3,200 a month. There's a lot of us that don't make, I don't, personally, personal cash. For myself, I don't have $3,200 a month. For myself, to say, I want to spend that for me. 
I don't have it. Yet they're getting it once they cross the border. And we're paying for it. Migration. Amy Pope. Listen to what she said three years ago about President Trump. Just listen carefully because you need to know this organization very, very, very well. I now look to Amy Pope to continue the case for the opposition. If a nation expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. Those are the words of the very first U.S. Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson. And it begs the question, what is the purpose of American foreign policy? The purpose of American foreign policy is... I wasn't going to cut her off, but I have to. I seriously have to. Thomas Jefferson lived in a time where, you know, one person could just squat in Oklahoma and say, I own 50 acres of land. Tough noogies, I'm here first. We had absolutely no people. And yet they pander to the words of a time that doesn't exist anymore. Okay. I want us to keep that in, in mind. Her orator, she's a great orator. Okay. Great orator. But the times back then are not the times now, right? Back then, Back then, right, kids would be in a schoolhouse and they all kind of, and the moms would be teaching in the schoolhouse. Now we've got institutions with, with freaking weapons things. This is crazy. So that's number one. When you're listening to people talk, you should say that was the foundation for then, but she's acting as if that's the foundation for now. It is not, Miss Pope. It totally isn't. Is to enhance the United States standing abroad so that it can keep the United States citizens more safe and secure. And I would argue that this president has failed in every respect to keep the United States safe from harms. Ladies and gentlemen, he is not disruptive. This is not uncertain foreign policy that is meant to destabilize our adversaries. There is no foreign policy. And when you have actions that are untethered from strategy, you put American lives at risk. I'd like to talk you through three ways in which President Trump is making America less secure as a result of his actions on the foreign stage. First, he fundamentally misunderstands the challenges of the 21st century. This is not post-World War II America. This is not post-World War II Europe. We are dealing with challenges that are unprecedented. They are asymmetric. They are transnational. And they cannot be contained by one nation acting alone. Whether we're talking about migration, terrorism, infectious disease, cyber attacks, the challenges and the threats of the 21st century cannot be managed by President, President Trump tweeting at four o'clock in the morning. Let's talk through one example in particular, cyber and digital threats. And when I talk about cyber, I talk about two pieces, misinformation, as well as outright attacks 
on our infrastructure. Let's start first with misinformation, because I think this is the much more serious threat to our democratic values. We are at a moment in time where people are questioning what is fact, what is truth. And the questions of what are fact and truth are being undermined by the President of the United States. All right, so they're undermined. Let me tell you guys something. Misinformation is a fantastic tool to confuse the enemy and empower your allies. Disinformation is only needed to confuse your enemies. Remember that. Powerful tool. So President Trump ripped the Band-Aid off. Everybody knows everything's fake. Nobody, every single person in there, <laughs> we're probably thinking, damn, he is right. So, you know, let's all play this off. But let's talk about the International Organization of Migration. Let me tell you what their primary objective is. To promote safe, orderly, and humane migration. Huh. Sounds really hot on the surface. But what does that actually mean? Well, just so you know, it works closely with governments, international partners, and civil society to provide a range of services and support in the migration process. There are many key areas. So like one of them would be migration and development. So the IOM recognizes the potential and benefits of migration for both countries. Listen carefully. Benefits of migration for both countries. I'll repeat. Benefit of migration for both countries of origin and destination. Meaning I will take these people and I will enslave them into my factories in this country. We're both win-win. Got it? Okay, sure. Deal. Get what I'm saying? Trafficking huh, can be seen as this too. I believe that the International Office of Migration is actually the International Office of Trafficking. Changed my mind. Because it supports initiatives that leverage the positive impacts of migration on development to the target destination, including programs to enhance the contribution of migrants to their home countries through remittances, skills transfer, and knowledge exchange. Huh, no, because you're getting childbearing age children, 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 childbearing age children, I repeat, and men that are ready to fight. That doesn't sound like skills transfer to me or any knowledge exchange when the majority of the people you're migrating are between the ages of 12 and 28. The next thing that they focus on is the migration of health. So the IOM actually places significant emphasis on promoting the health and well-being of migrants. It works to improve access to health care, prevent or address migration-related health challenges, and advocate for the rights of migrants to receive adequate health services. How do they do that? By makeshift tents in the middle of the desert? Maybe on the side where people are taking craps and dumps outside the tent. Is that your health? Oh, but that's all the money we have. Get out of here. You don't need to move them. Migration management. Oh, and here's the key. It assists governments in developing, listen carefully, comprehensive migration policies that enhance border management and strengthen migration governance frameworks. It aims to ensure that um, migration occurs in a well-regulated manner, balancing the rights and needs of both the migrants and host communities. 
And that's also being done with migration data and research because the IOMM collects and analyzes migration data to enhance the understanding of migration trends, patterns, and drivers. What drives migration? What do we need to do to set a fire so people run away so that they get choked by the smoke? How can we entice them to live in a refugee camp for 10 years and be so broke and so needy that we could just put them wherever and they'll put their head down and hang out at a salt mine in Korea and just mine salt all day for them as slaves. Or maybe we can bring them here so we can have them under the table working for us and doing the remedial jobs that none of us wish to do, like maybe garbage or cleaning or whatever, or just sex slaves. Yeah. Or they could participate in experiments that will help and benefit humanity, right? Host communities. They are also involved in the migration and displacement crisis situations. The ones they actually help invent, they go and diffuse, and they play a critical role in providing humanitarian assistance and protection to migrants, kind of like the protection they were getting at the border a few years ago where they had all these NGOs. Thank you, Senator Wyden, for that tidbit. All these NGOs selecting them. Because they provide them protection and, and stuff about conflict and things that happen like natural or unnatural disasters or emergencies or war. It supports evacuations, shelters, resettlements of displaced persons and collaborates with other humanitarian organizations to address any specific needs that the migrants have. Of course, they're at the top of their mind. Like, why not? They work to foster, as they claim, cooperation and dialogue among governments and civil society, civil society, and migrants themselves. By promoting rights and well-beings of migrants and addressing the challenges associated with migration. It's kind of funny how I tweeted out that stuff on Texas and everyone's talking about Texas now. It was a coincidence, of course, because that's what happened. The International Organization for Migration was founded on December 5th, 1951. It was established as an intergovernmental organization in response to the displacement and migration challenges resulting from the aftermath of World War II. It was actually founded by the initiative of the governments that participated in the Provisional Intergovernmental Committee for the Movement of Migrants from Europe called the PIC-MME, P-I-C-M-M-E. And the PIC-MME was formed in 1949 to coordinate efforts among governments in dealing with large-scale movements of people in Europe following the war. So in 1951, PIC-MME transformed into the Intergovernment Committee for European Migration, now known as ICEM, and that expanded the scope way beyond Europe to address migration matters globally. So in 1989, after we had our way with Russia, right, the organization adopted its current name, which is called the IOM, the International Organization of Migration, to reflect its global focus and obviously evolving responsibilities, or shall I say opportunities for just creating chaos and figuring it out, right? So since its establishment, it's become one of the most leading organizations in the field of migration. It has 173 member countries signed up and they have programs 
that they've implemented in making deals. So it would be, it would be like, for example, the U.S. having a seat at the table with Mexico, right? And they're sitting at a desk and the IOM is the, is the, so this hope chick will be on the other side of the desk and it's like couples therapy, U.S. and Mexico. And then, you know, the, you know, hope is like, Hey, Mexico, you got a lot of people that don't have jobs. Mexico's like, nah, man, we have jobs, but we got problems with cartels and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you know, we need a lot of people. We need uh, the United States right now. Their needs are that they need people to work in factories because the majority of the people in the United States are educated to the point that they can uh, create their own businesses and whatnot. We love the Americans to actually increase their small businesses and we'd need low paying workers to come in. So we'd like your people that will work for cheap so that way we can make more money. In addition, we have a lot of things that we're doing. We're doing a ton of experiments and we need people that are more lower class that would probably die because they work with cartels. So we need a bunch of those people. Just give us the people that have no purpose in their life that we could just use and abuse because, you know, it's their fault. They chose that path. So we'd like those too for the United States. The United States would say, in turn, we can like export things if you give us all these people. That sounds kind of hot. So then they get together and they have this discussion they're like all right all right i'm willing to like allow a million people to go okay how do we do this well don't worry we'll send our own agents from the iom and tell them what amazing opportunities we have in programs we'll set up the programs we'll get them in we'll get the lawyers from the host country which is the united states and get it done and in the meantime, the United States will probably bring GM Motors to you. And maybe Teva Pharmaceuticals, you know, the Israeli company that makes pharmaceuticals uh, that a lot of you take, kind of like metformin or whatever, they'll just move their base to generate the pharmaceuticals there. It'll be fair. We'll have a fair trade-off. You give us the body capital we need and we'll give you some business. You see how that goes? That's the role of the IOM. That is literally the role of the IOM. Now... Let's have the IOM tell us what their role is. You want to you want to you want to hear what they have to say? Let's 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 see how they describe themselves. I just gave you like the off the cuff uh, you know, explanation, right? Huh? But here we go. Here's their website, World Migration. I'm going to dislike that and be like no. Now we're going to play it. We are the International Organization for Migration, IOM, the UN Migration Agency. Our organization was founded in 1951, and presently we have 169 member states. IOM has more than 400 offices around the world. IOM is a humanitarian organization that works on migration issues. We respect migrants' rights, including the right to seek asylum and the right to fair and humane treatment. Only governments can decide who is permitted to enter and stay in a country. Therefore, IOM cannot influence asylum or immigration cases in Norway. IOM works with authorities, but individual governments do not have the power to instruct IOM. All cooperation with governments is based upon agreements. Our office in Oslo opened in 2002. Our main programs are cultural orientation and voluntary assisted return. We provide cultural orientation for UN refugees coming to Norway. For asylum seekers and migrants unable to stay in Norway, we offer an assisted voluntary return and reintegration program.
Now that's, that's a no for me. No for you too, right? No for you too? Well, let's listen to Jesh and, and Mish Canada vlogs who totally love the IOM. And, uh, let's, let's, let's see what, <laughs> let's see. Man, I'm feeling trolly today. Seriously. I'm like on a trolley kick, but let's look at these people quickly. Now, obviously I always leave my commentary, so I'm going to do that right quick. It's a no. Um, no, 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 no. Now let's get to that. Guys, welcome back to our YouTube channel. I'm Jet Paderes. And I'm Mish Paderes. For today's video, pag-uusapan natin ngayon ang medical exam sa IOM. Kung paano ba magpa-appointment online, mga tips, requirements, at step-by-step na gagawin mo sa araw ng medical. Pero bago ang lahat at kung bago ka pa lang sa aming channel, please like, share, subscribe for more updated videos. Tayo sa bahay at wag po muna tayong pagalagala sa labas. Yes, stay at home muna lang muna tayo. Oo. So, ang ginawa po namin noon, nung inubo at sinipon kami, pinakancel ko po muna yung appointment ko, then nagpa-reschedule na lang ako. Yes. So, these influencers were picked, and I know a lot of you don't understand the language, so I'm just going to give you the gist of it. They're telling them how easy it is to just go through the exam and get it done. A lot of people actually volunteer, too. They love it. It's a U.S. Uh, uh, it's actually an entry point to get into the UN now, but the UN took over six years ago. It joined the UN system. It was independent at first, working for major corporations, bringing in the people that they want for experiments, for cheap labor, to build a kind of, I mean, why do you think your stuff went off overseas? Comments are obviously turned off. Still going to dislike this. I don't know why they're advertising YouTube for kids on this. I'm not a kid. But here is when they joined. I want you guys to listen to this. I'll begin the ceremony for the signing of the agreement concerning the relationship between the United Nations and the International Organization for Migration. I now invite the Secretary General of the United Nations and the Director General of the International Organization for Migration to the table. This is an important moment as we ensure the United Nations system is fully integrated to advance a comprehensive and coordinated response for the implementation of the New York Declaration and address the dire situation of the migrant and refugee communities. I now give the floor to Mr. William Lacey Swing, the Director General of the International Organization for Migration. Mr. Secretary General, Ambassador Thompson, President of the 71st Session of the General Assembly, Mr. Likatov, President of the 70th Session of the General Assembly, 
Your Excellencies, Heads of States and Government, Excellencies Ministers, members of the Diplomatic Corps, ladies and gentlemen. The signature of this historic agreement brings the leading global migration agency, the International Organization for Migration, IOM, into the United Nations and culminates a 65-year relationship with the UN. So for the very first time in 71 years, the United Nations now has a UN migration agency. This is a singular honor for our organization and I believe a genuine success for migrants in particular, but also for member states and indeed for this summit. On behalf of IOM's 10,000 colleagues in some 500 duty stations on all five continents, I wish to thank the Secretary General, the Deputy Secretary General, the Presidents of the 71st and 70th General Assemblies, as well as IOM's 165 member states and the 193 member states of the United Nations who are assembled here today. Thank you for this bold and visionary decision. There are three developments that have brought us to this landmark moment today, and these are my three points. First of all, global migration trends. Secondly, fortuitous timing. And thirdly, trust built on a half century of cooperation. First point is that migration has become a mega trend of our century. We live in a world on the move. There have never been so many people in movement, unprecedented human mobility. One billion of our seven billion world are migrants, one in every seven of us a migrant. And were the 244 million international migrants to constitute themselves as a country, they would have a population slightly smaller than Indonesia's and slightly larger than Brazil's. They would have a gross domestic product roughly that of a small to medium-sized European country and far exceed all foreign aid. Now, driving migration are, of course, demography, disasters, the digital revolution, distance shrinking technology, north-south disparities, and environmental degradation. Unfortunately, as a result of these driving forces, a record number of people are uprooted, forced to move refugees, internally displaced persons, victims of trafficking, unaccompanied minors, and climate change threats threatens yet a further 75 million living just one meter above sea level. So we're facing also a series that I have not seen in my lifetime of unprecedented, simultaneous, complex, and protracted crises and humanitarian emergencies in an arc of instability that stretches from the western bulge of Africa to the Himalayas. Worse still, there is little prospect that I see to resolve any of these crises in the short to medium term. Widespread, growing anti-migrant sentiment and policies have led to the cruel irony that those fleeing terrorism and fleeing armed conflict are themselves now accused of terrorism and criminality in the public mind of many. Besides the challenges of disasters, we face the demographic challenge of a global north in demographic deficit and a global south with a turgid rate of job creation, 
facing demographic surplus. So our thesis is that migration is inevitable in this century owing to the drivers that I mentioned, necessary if our economies and societies are to flourish, and highly desirable if we have responsible and humane migration policies. To do this, we have to change the toxic public narrative now on migration and learn to manage inexorably growing ethnic, cultural, social, and religious diversity. Second point, we live with an evolving migratory landscape. The timing for such an agreement today proved to be fortuitous. Global concerns, especially in Europe, led to a series of major agreements in 2015, a watershed year. Agreements that gave the UN for the first time an explicit official migration mandate, and as a non-UN uh, member, this made a more formal IOM association with the UN in the interest of both institutions. These agreements, of course, are the Sendai DRR framework, the SDGs of September, and the Paris Climate Change Declaration of December. Migration also had a prominent place on the agenda of the World Humanitarian Summit. We're gathered here today at an historic summit, the first ever to assemble heads of state from around the world to address the questions of refugees and migrants. I'm very grateful to the co-facilitators and others who took part in this important New York Declaration. Timing, therefore, became a critical element in the decision of our IOM member states to seek formal association with the UN. Let me just say, thirdly and final point, we are actually formalizing an old relationship. Many people long thought that IOM was already in the UN. We've done everything together. We cooperate with all agencies, and we've built up a level of trust that made the, the negotiations fairly straightforward. We were born, after all, together with our traditional partner, UNHCR, in 1951 to bring Europeans ravaged by the Second World War to safe shores and new lives. Since then, we've collaborated so closely that we have continued to think of ourselves as UN in many ways. Together with UNHCR, we have brought at least six million people, uh, refugees, to safe shores. Through our negotiations, therefore, trust became a precious commodity. We will continue to keep our member states fully and regularly informed. We will continue to insist on being cost-effective with our business model, where 97% of our 10,000 people are overseas, and where out of a budget of $1.5 billion, we will use less than $50 million to run the organization. We will also continue to offer quick delivery, the same sort of openness that allowed us to come to consensus on this agreement. Let me just conclude by saying that these three elements made the agreement possible, global trends, decade-long trust, and fortuitous timing. The positive nature of the agreement underscores that migration is not so much an issue to be resolved or a problem to be solved. It is a human reality that together we all have to manage, and to do that, we have to be both responsible and humane. This can be a defining moment for human mobility, beginning with this summit. Thank you. Ah, oh, all roses and flowers. Let, let me talk to you guys a little bit more about the IOM, okay?
So as I said, the IOMM was created in 1951 in Geneva and then created new headquarters in Geneva. Uh, the IOM itself gets a lot of money, but it not only gets a lot of money, it manages trusts, you know, which are big ass bank accounts. And that's how it goes. Now, who funds them? Well, there's a lot of funding sources that they have. A few of them, and the more major ones, is that the IOM is funded through, you know, con contribution of member states, international organization, private donors, and other partners. The funding structure of the IOM consists both of assessed contributions and voluntary contributions. What? Assessed and voluntary key here. But here's some key sources of them. Member state contributions, right, is number one, right? Member states, not countries, states. Again, huh? U.S. isn't a country, it's a state. Russia is not a country, it's a state. China is not a country, it's a state. France isn't a country, it's a state. I'm reinforcing, ha, huh? definitions. So the IOM receives financial support from its member states. They contribute funds based on the scale determined by the UN General Assembly, which takes into account factors such as the country's population and GDP. Oh, who was talking about that? Oh, that was President Trump, <laughs> wasn't it? Where he's like, you guys aren't paying your fair share. Voluntary contributions is another way they do it. So governments, both member states and non-member states, can provide voluntary contributions to support specific programs or initiatives of the IOM. Now, these contributions are additional to the assessed contributions and are typically earmarked for specific projects or regions. For example, the, the state member of the United States will pay, I don't know, $800 billion a year. That's your bill. We're sending you an invoice. Pay that. But on top of that, the U.S. is like, yo, we're about to FAFO in Afghanistan. Here's an additional half a billion dollars. And China's like, yo, I kind of like that. I'm a non-member state, so I'm going to drop another half a billion dollars. And then Russia's like, yo, why not? I'll give like 250. Let's mess that up. And suddenly you've got chaos, voluntary contributions versus an invoice. International organizations also meddle, you know, Coca-Cola and stuff like that. Wait, we'll get into that. You know, the IOM collaborates, of course, with various international organizations, including the UN, of course, system. Again, no one uses that. They just call it the UN. It's a UN system. UN system. Let's call the demons by its name. Let's talk the factions by their names. UN system and regional organizations to supplement and implement joint projects and programs. These international organizations may provide financial support to the IOM for shared initiatives. Hmm. Coca-Cola's like, yo, I'll give them water, I'll give them Coca-Cola, Sprite, Sunkiss, but I want to own this in exchange and I'm going to open up a factory in exchange Kind of like the way Nike went to Turkey, <laughs> but that's another story. Then we also have private donors. Private donors, like what kind of private donor is going to be like, yo, here's half a billion dollars, take it. Private donors, yeah. The IOM actually receives funding from private donors, like the Damazian group, you know, the one that doesn't exist, you know, the one that funds the real puppet masters the one that funded my salaries. So um, 
Those private donors can be unrestricted and directed towards specific projects and activities. In addition, they can get grants and partnerships, you know, through, you know, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, so many of those around, aren't they? And if you remember on Enjoy the Show, it showed you all these NGOs that we've set up to do special projects and activities, kind of like the IOM, right? And there's other entities that will provide grants and funding for some programs. Uh, And the IOM may actually receive grants from governmental aid agencies, Development banks, you know, like USAID, World Bank, or other funding mechanisms. But last but not least, their most fruitful income comes from trust funds. The IOM manages various trust funds uh, established by governments and international organizations and private entities. These funds are actually dedicated to specific areas of work, such as migration and development, migration health, migration crisis response. I know all of you know at least one of these trust funds that are being held. Like the funding landscape for the IOM is so diverse. It's like Hydra. You know, the minute you cut one head off, you got 10 others, right? And it reflects the organization's collaborative type nature and the wide range of migration-related programs that are available. Now, here are some of these funds. Uh, Global Migration Data Analysis Center, the the GMDAC, right? I used to use that a lot. Uh, the data that the fund had. So the G, GMDAC um, fund, it actually supports the work of IOM's Global Migration Data Analysis Center. I mean, I can't overrun countries. I can't convince them to do shit if I don't have the data. They have so much data on human movement. It's ridiculous. So what the the GMDAC does, right, it conducts research analysis and data collection to enhance the understanding of migration trends and inform evidence-based policy making. So it would be someone like me that would be like, yo, we need to get Ukraine under check. I need to see how many people are moving to Ukraine, moving out of Ukraine. And when they move out of Ukraine, where do they go? What kind of jobs do they get? How many of them are going into strip joints down in Albania? True story. How many of them are actually uh, becoming teachers in offshoots of Ukrainian side schools in Romania? True story. I want to see who I need to target. Show me the bodies and how they move. Right. So the GM DAC fund, um, you know, is a fund of money that supports all that data collection. Hmm. Then we have uh, the development fund that they have, which is just a development fund that supports projects and programs to contribute, get this, to social and economic development of communities. <laughs> Sounds like they just copy and paste it off of USAID, right? And, um, uh, you know, and obviously to communities that are affected by migration, of course. What do you mean affected by migration? What does that even mean? I mean, you can't be affected by migration. They just migrate. But if you're talking about effective invasion, yeah, okay, then that makes sense, right? We need to use the right words when we talk about stuff. Now, a migration emergency funding mechanism. So that's the MEMF, right? M-E-F-M, right? MEMF, (laughs) that's how I pronounce it. Now, that trust fund is massive. It has fast, furious flexible funding to support emergency response efforts in humanitarian crisis. Because, you know, like the guy at the UN just now said, it's very important. We got people living a meter below sea level. Yeah, we got that in Louisiana. How come they're not migrating? (laughs) Huh? I thought that was a problem. How come they're not migrating? Hmm? Interesting. So, 
what they do is they go in when the disaster happens and they're like, oh, we'll give you life-saving assistance. We'll support the affected populations and we'll protect you. And then we'll relocate you to where we find necessary. You're a nameless kid, right? No face, no name. Nobody's asking for you. They're all dead. Come here. We're running an experiment. You could be a superhero or you might die, but we won't tell you the die part. This is just how you're going to get in. You do, you'll sit in this hospital. We'll monitor you. We'll educate you. And if you survive, guess what? We'll release you into the ether and you could just go live your life. <laughs> Psych. So next, we have the Migration Health Division funding mechanism. Now, that trust fund actually supports the activities relating to the health and it has programs for vaccines, for abortions, for population control, for testing experiments, um, you know, for migrants in host communities, meaning, hey, all these people are coming into Italy from Iberia. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to vaccinate them with this novel thing to say, if you want to stay here, you got to take this vaccine. A hundred people are coming in. You might be left over with 10. You could deal with that, right? You see how that works? So they do that under the guise of disease prevention and control, capacity building, and, you know, research the field of migration health, you know, because migration does provide health concerns. You know, they come through borders just like we got the plague in Europe came from the East because the people of the West were not conditioned to the bacteria of the East that probably were juggernauts, you know. It's kind of like people in America, oh, I, I'm lactose intolerant. You will not find one person in Africa that's lactose intolerant okay you won't even touch meat that isn't red and pink they're okay if it's a little bit green okay what i'm saying so <laughs> this is how it works now the iom and the southern border big deal right here now just so you know u.s organizations that get money or provide money to the IOM are the usual suspects, are NGOs, right? NGOs, US-based NGOs, right? We've got the Office of Refugee Resettlement, ORR. You've been hearing a lot about that, right? That's part of DHS, right? And then we have DHS in itself, right? Because they engage in DHS on issues of border management, migration, bullshit, right? Then we've got USAID. And obviously the Department of State. So it's Department of State, which has USAID, Department of Homeland Security, which has ORR, and then we got your NGOs. So in fact, out of all those, it's really three central entities, State Department, DHS, and your beloved NGOs. You want to hear which U.S.-based NGOs kind of help with all this down at the border? You know, you really want to talk about border invasions, right, with the invaders? Let's start. Church World Service, CWS. CWS is key. They collaborate with the IOM on everything involving resettlement of refugees, community integration, and livelihood support. CWS is one. The next one is the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. <laughs> and we know how we feel about Catholic bishops lately. The IOM has worked with the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops for like forever and a day on programs related to refugees, protection, migration policy, advocacy, and community development. Right? These are all U.S.-based organizations that are helping invaders. 
International Rescue Committee, IRC. I kind of like IRC because that's like my chat client. That's my jam. But the, it's not the same thing. The IOM and the IRC collaborate on projects that are crimes against humanity, but they say that they help with refugee settlements, emergency responses, and assistance to displaced population. Remember the IRC role that they played in Haiti when they were trying to escape children to the Dominican, which we'll get to very soon. And so then we have world relief. Oh, we relieve people in the world. Oh. Community development, of course. But the biggest fund that the IOM runs in Central America is called MIRPS. MIRPS. M-I-R-P-S, Regional Migration Programs, right? The Regional Migration Program known as MIRPS, Programa Regional de Migración in Centro America, is a collaborative effort led by governments in Central America, Mexico, and right, the Dominican Republic, with the support and coordination of the IOM and other international partners, of course, right? MIRPS always aims to address the complex migration challenges in the region through a comprehensive and coordinated approach. We provide caravans and coyotes, and we selectively select people that can't pick corn anymore and say, get on this bus, walk with this mass of people to the border, because we'll get you in. It focuses on protection because the coyotes are really nice and assistance to migrate because the coyotes are really nice. Regional migration governance because the coyotes are really nice and addressing the root causes of migration. Cartels have nothing to do with that, of course, including poverty, violence, lack of opportunities, but I digress. So MERS is playing a very big role in our southern border. But, you know, we have people screaming, build a wall only. Oh, we need this. Oh, let's let them in. Let's do that. Right. Well. The IOM, when it joined the UN system, it did it to enhance its effectiveness, expand and reach. And it wanted UN agencies and again, member states, member states, 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 not countries, states. And the decision for them to become part of the UN was motivated by four key factors. Alignment with international norms and standards. Everybody is on the same page. This is how we're going to manipulate populations. This is how we're going to use them. This is how we create the Hunger Games, right? I did say that years ago. This is like you're watching the Hunger Games. It has access to resources and collaborative opportunities so they can actually use other programs that they have, like the World Food Program, World Trade Program, right? Um, and other hyper-specific and vertical industry, I guess, programs that they have in other nations to both um, allow them for enhanced collaboration with other governments. Another one is to have global vis visibility and legitimacy. They wanted to be more legit. They wanted to be part of the UN system. And then there's that they get recognized, right? By being part of the UN, they're getting recognized as, hey, look, I got the title. I got the tiara. I'm the bomb. Listen to me. So the IOM did join the UN and they had like, they both decided to do it. So they were like, kind of like, yo, what's up? And it's like, I don't know what's up. And then IOM's like, yo, I need to be a little bit more legit. I need to bring in more money. I'm managing these funds right now, but you know, we're kind of on the same page and I want to be in charge of moving the population. You could be controlling them, how many live, how many die, how we feed them. You know, you can 
do the whole evolution thing, but let me bring the population. Can we, can, can we, can we date? I, I love you, you and we can work together. We can make magical music. So then that proposal was literally motivated by the recognition and the growing importance of the complexity of migration as a global issue and the need for a more comprehensive and coordinated approach. Right. Their, their, their merge, right was aimed to strengthen the collaboration between the, the UN agencies and the IOM. So after the proposal was done, the decision to admit the IOM as a related organization with the UN system was proposed by the UN General Assembly on September 19, 2016. Oh my God, Barack, you don't play. The, that actually was a significant milestone between them. It's almost like they knew they were going to invade our border. So they knew. Do you want to know some of these private corporations that are helping fund all these border people down there? I'll let you, I'll give you. Well, first of all, we all know Goldman Sachs. I think they're like chief chef potster of the world. When you see Goldman Sachs come in, the only thing I envision is like a, a, a Wario, right? Not Mario, Wario chef with a big ass wooden spoon that's ready to stir the part and cause chaos when he's not supposed to stir, right? Goldman Sachs has collaborated with the IOM for forever and a day on projects related to economic empowerment, right? And livelihood support for like allegedly for vulnerable migrants and refugees. They provide financial contribution and mentoring programs. That's their role. Another one, IKEA. You know, all those cheap beds. I kind of like Ikea. I, I, I mess with that. I like Ikea. I can go, you know, Ikea is like my target, right? If I go into Ikea, I'm there the whole day. It's done. It's over. And all I'll walk out with is like maybe a plate that I don't need or maybe a plant I don't need. But Ikea, Ikea. The Ikea Foundation has provided substantial funding to the IOM for a lot of programs. And this is why we didn't see the Swedes get invaded. They just selectively take people, right? because they pay a lot. So Ikea pays a lot of money and their support is focused on areas like shelter, housing solutions, livelihood support, education for displaced populations. But here's the deal. Ikea gives a shit ton of money when they make makeshift camps. Ikea provides the furniture so they make money again, right? The Ikea makes some of the money back. And then what happens is in Sweden, you know, they don't get invaded because <laughs> that's the deal. They're paying to keep them out. And obviously, we have UPS. Woo! Next day delivery, that's what's up. So the UPS Foundation has been supporting them from financial contributions and in-kind support, get this, for emergency response and disaster relief efforts. So UPS provides logistical assistance for the transportation of humanitarian aid to affected regions. So they get tax cuts globally. They get easy leeway into airports to transport things. They can maybe obscure cargo because they got to deal with them as long as that they transport the things that they want, right? So that's that. So how do they transport stuff? UPS. Well, we got to talk about money. I mean, we did talk about Goldman Sachs, but they're the chief Wario chef potster to mess up economies and then sit back and try to help with the solutions. But we also have to do remittance services like banking for all these migrants. So guess who the deal is? Western Union, right? Western Union 
have, which is the number one source, that and MoneyGram, of funding terrorism, also provides substantial funding to the IOM for various programs related to migration and displacement. Their support is like focused on like areas like shelter and housing and livelihood, but by education, BS, it's not. They're just a preferred system, right? Western Union of remittance services for migrants and their families. Yo, Jose, you just came here. You could send money to your family back through Western Union. Yo, Jose, here's a gold green dot card. This is how you get paid by the government. Take it. And last but not least, and I know all of you have probably guessed it. I haven't been able to see the chat. Microsoft. Microsoft has been partnering with the IOM related to migration data analyses, tech-driven solutions and support for migrant and Jeff and refugees, of course. And their support has included financial contributions, tech assistant and joint projects. So if you want to know what's going on in your border, you got to know who's running the border and who's funding it. You know, we've got an organization that's headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland, right? That involves themselves in diplomatic activities and changes the landscape of the population of all nations at the drop of a hat when they decide to. So I'd like to close with this today. The terms invasion and infiltration refer to distinct concepts related to the movement of individuals or groups in a specific territory. Think of it, invasion versus infiltration. Now, can infiltration happen under the guise of invasion? Yes, that's the best way. That's the bee's knees. You wouldn't even see it coming. Infiltration can happen under the guise of an invasion. In many cases, a larger scale invasion may be caused to cover or distract to facilitate infiltration. This can involve individuals in smaller groups exploiting chaos or confusion caused by the invasion to infiltrate a territory covertly and carry out specific activities without detection. By blending in with large groups, they have an opportunity to, you know, to achieve their objectives. That can include espionage, sabotage, or carrying out illegal activities like bombings, shootings, you know, all that good stuff. It's important to note that while infiltration can occur under the guise of invasion, not all infiltrations are part of an invasion, right? Of course. Infiltration can happen independently right? Without any associated large-scale invasion. In such cases, infiltrators may exploit weaknesses in border security, utilize false identities, or employ other covert methods to gain access to territory or carry out their activities, right? So the relationship between invasion and infiltration can vary depending on the specific circumstances and motivations of the individuals or groups involved. Now, personally, national security matters should focus on invasion of our borders. Why? Territorial integrity number one. Borders define a country's territorial integrity, marking the boundaries within such a sovereign state existing, right? And it exercises its authority. Like, what kind of authority do we have right now? It's like, oh, you can't come in. And it's like, push, push you down. I don't care. National security aims to safeguard territorial integrity by preventing unauthorized or hostile forces from crossing the border. Invasion refers to the intentional and forceful entry into a territory with the intention of occupying or controlling it. Protecting our border from invasion is crucial. 
to maintain a nation's sovereignty and to ensure the integrity of its territory. In addition, sovereignty and self-determination should also be at the forefront for our damn stupid idiots that are pretending to play national security pundits, opiners, policymakers. Like, what the heck? Like, step aside, girls. I'll step in and fix this. The ability of a nation to determine its own political, social, and economic affairs is closely tied to its sovereignty. Invasion undermines a country's sovereignty by imposing external control and influence. National security efforts are supposed to aim to prevent such invasions, to protect a nation's right to self-determination, to maintain autonomy in decision-making processes. What kind of decision-making process autonomy does the state of Texas have right now overrun by people who don't speak English with really expensive shoes and phones that track them, right, that are getting a salary and have nowhere to go? That causes instability, which is the next thing that national security should be focusing on when we have issues like this. Defense and stability. Border invasions can pose a significant threat to a country's security, stability, and defense capabilities, right? Because invasion by hostile forces can lead to conflicts, violence, disruption, and peace within the invaded territory. National security measures must focus on detecting this and deterring political invasions, potential invasions, to maintain stability, to protect their own citizens, and safeguard critical infrastructure and resources. If there's a city in Texas right now with 5,000 people, and I just dropped 10,000 migrants, Every one of those 5,000 people that live in that city, they're not going to have food. They're not going to have water. The crime is going to increase because all those other 10,000 people have nowhere to go. There's no house, no apartment. Maybe they'll build a tent city. So that way, those people in the tent city are like, I'm just going to go rob this person. See, these are problems. But now this also provides the segues into the next thing that national security should be paying attention to, economical and social impact. Like invasion that is happening right now has a severe economic and social consequence to the territories that they're entering in Arizona, in California, and in Texas. And now they're flying them out everywhere. So they're just bringing it to your doorstep because it disrupts everything. Infrastructure displaces people and creates actual humanitarian crises, which will then lead to be like, UN, come help us, right? Right? Because they're sucking off the teat that's dry. <sighs> Lady Liberty is not lactating right now. She is so dry, we can't even suck off that teat. Rule of laws and public safety are key. Effective border security measures play a vital role in upholding the, the rule of law and ensuring public safety. Invasion leads to lawlessness. We see it everywhere. Violence, we see that everywhere. Criminal activities, totally everywhere. By preventing unauthorized entries and controlling broader, the border crossings, national security efforts can contribute to maintaining order and deterring criminal elements and protecting the safety and well-being of the citizens. We don't need another Oklahoma. Dude, don't do the other Oklahoma, please. <laughs> we don't need it. Because let's just think, how do we fix this? Let's just, let's just go back to the definition quickly. Invasion, 
What does that mean? An invasion typically refers to a deliberate and forceful entry into a territory by a large group of people, often with the intention of seizing control or causing disruption. Now, you're going to tell me that Mary with her daughter that have been raped along the way or heading there because they want to cause us harm? No, they think they're going to a better place and they just got to suck it up as long as they survive to get there, right? But by them being there, it causes disruption. By them being there, it collapses our infrastructure because we're kind. Americans are kind and loving. And so invasions can occur during times of conflict or during times of aggression or when you want to topple a government where one entity decides to enter another entity's territory. This is the only free country on paper left on this rock. And invasions are typically seen as a violation of territorial sovereignty. That is key. And it's considered illegal under international law. But, you know, they're dreamers, right? They're just looking for a better place. So they're coming to us because the rest of Central America and South America are all screwed. So let's just all go to the United States. Get out of here. Infiltration, on the other hand, refers to covert and surreptitious entry of individuals or groups into a territory often with the aim of gaining access, gathering information, or carrying out specific activities. How you like me, Brennan? There you go. Infiltration can involve individuals crossing borders or entering restricted areas without detection or official authorization. It is usually characterized by secrecy, stealth, and strategic approach to avoid detection by, you know, your target, of course. And infiltration can occur for various purposes, including espionage, intelligence gathering, illegal activities, and subversive actions, or walking you right into a box. And I'm loving this, and I can't troll about it. So let's just say, in our scenario, as the invasion is unfolding, the people of the United States are becoming aware of what's going on. A while ago, a couple, when I was in Texas days ago, I tweeted out and posted a picture. Hey, look, all these migrants. I spoke about it on Apollo show, obviously at the top of the news, but what do you do? You're seeing that all these airlines are pushing all these people. Invasion is unfolding. You are seeing it. What do the citizens do? Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to spank Mallorca? So we're going to spam the uh, DHS committee. Yeah, we can do that. We can make a public record, but there are ways, there are some ways of doing it. And, and we've got it. The legal Avenue. Now, how are we going to do that? Think about it. Do you have evidence that the people of the United States, right here, do the people of the United States have evidence from either investigative journalists or concerned citizens that will show that airlines are involved in transporting invaders? Yes, we do. We have pictures. Um, uh, we're paying them with tax dollars, right? So the airlines are participating in moving migrants, right? Without our permission. Someone's going to say, well, somebody else, whose permission do they have to move the migrants? Let me guess. Did the IOM step in and give a plan of where they're going to distribute the refugees? This international Geneva-based organization, the UN, have they given the plan of, hey, you're going to drop off 10,000 migrants at Lincoln, Nebraska, You're going to head to Fargo and drop off 10,000 migrants. You're going to go to New Mexico and drop off 50,000. The public has to be outraged and aware. The public doesn't know what to say. It's all, they've, they've totally whitewashed it. Border, border, border. Oh, look what's going on. This is happening. That's not helping. We need movement. 
We need to assemble great legal teams and people that are affected by the invasion. Do you know how you're affected? Did your town get these invaders in there? All right, now let's look how many resources they're spending. My city had $10 million in their bank. This is hypothetical, $10 million in the bank, but now they only have a million because they had to pay for the refugees. But, or else, my city had 10 million, but now they have 100 million. So they could pay for all these refugees. Are they allocating it correctly? Did the mayor's brother get the contract to build the building? Are they getting jobs? Are they being prostituted? Can the children go to school? Do we have English as a second language? We should hire more. Who's doing this? These are the things. This is how it should be done. There is absolutely no organization for the people of the United States. We're all running as if someone cut our head off like a chicken. We have no idea which direction we're going. Legal proceedings. The legal battle can unfold in the courts with both sides presenting their arguments. So how do Americans do it? We need to find that. We need to find that one community where we can have the full transparency of the effect of these invaders and that's how you do it. We have a shit ton of Ukrainians here in Cleveland. These people are being trafficked like crazy and they're being used. It is online. It is not a joke. All these women have filled up the strip joints. They're on chats that I'm watching and it makes my heart sink. It makes my heart sink. They bring in invaders because they need to bring in the infiltrators and you'll see how that rolls out in the next few months. The Mallorcas is blowing smoke uh, out everyone's butt. Everyone's playing stupid. Title 42 had to be reinstated because judges are like, I'm not okay with this. No one should be okay with this because they will come for us. Our citizens will come for us. That is exactly where they want you to get to the point that you grab your guns and that you go in there. That's what they want. That's exactly what you don't want to do. You need to use your pen. You need to exercise restraint. And you know, because they can't get you to do it, they just get feds around you to convince you to do it. <laughs> That's what they do. So the outcome of lawsuits can be based on our legal system will strengthen the evidence that's presented. We need to start talking about this like it is. It's an invasion. It is an invasion that has been orchestrated by international organization that is giving relief to our enemies. This is treason. It's complete treason. The IOM is something everyone should be talking about. Their role with our southern border, with MERPs, that needs to be discussed. It's pretty sad that it's not, because it's necessary. Very, very necessary. It's horrific that the conversations that we're having about Southern border are more about the outrage of what's happening rather than, okay, who's in charge? DHS, no, they're not. They are not in charge. So if they're not in charge, who's in charge? IOM, UN, IOM, that's how you get to the bottom of something. You find the person who is responsible. Because you know what this is? This is just a circus. That's what's up. It's just a damn circus. And how do we stop the circus? I mean, we could get rid of the clowns. And that's happening before your eyes as I speak. But many of you can't even recognize it because you're that angry. Well, a lot of people said, you know, in messages over this past week, damn, your turkey thing was always on point. You were on point with everything. Time from there, everything when you started your show is now unfolding. Yeah. So then how's this? I already told you that God wins. I already told you it's okay. So what do you do? Do you sit back and relax or you do, or do you play your role as a participant? 
Because if we have too many spectators, circus. God bless. See you tomorrow. Don't like the backseat, gotta be fair.